Hello everybody, what is up my friends? I hope you are doing well. Welcome to the 40th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Today we discuss Afghanistan. So let me see who all is here. Let me greet you all. I can see Jay Dikshit, Dharmraj, Dr. Dharmraj, Khodke, Harshit, Sher Singrana, Divesh, Kira, Prasiddhi, Chiching, Sin, Ninad, Mayur, Shubhang Singh, Ganesh, Shiv Shankar, Sujoy Kumar, Aniraj, Iron Man, Sonu Mandal, Prashant, Deepan, Shubhan Yadav, Chandana, A.R., Harsh, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Shivdeep, Arya Vikas, Chiching, Neha Martand, Ankit, Sujoy Kumar Ghosh, Saurav Sen, Sonam Singh, Shankajit Ghosh, and many, many more people. Good evening, good day, everybody. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So uh, before I begin, I would like to thank you all. Thank you for your viewership. Thank you for your for the for your for your comments. Thank you for all the messages of support, all the encouragement. I really appreciate it. I would also like to thank all the members, those who have who have purchased memberships to support the channel. Thank you so much, and thank you to all of you who have uh, contributed to the channel either via PayPal, UPI, etc. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. So. Uh, today we discuss Afghanistan and geopolitics and I have picked about 28, 29, almost 30 questions that you guys have asked. I'm not sure if I'll be able to cover them all today, but I'm going to try my best. So let's get into it with question number one. Question number one is uh, two questions. Kuldeep asks, if 99% people of Afghanistan want Sharia law, then who are the people fleeing from Afghanistan amid the panic? And the other question is, something is not adding up here. If the Afghan people are in favor of Sharia law and Taliban, then why are thousands fleeing and more waiting to leave the country? I don't think it's as simple. This is a question many of you have asked. It's a very good question. We have to understand what's happening. So according to the Pew poll that was done, I think last year, or very recently, it's, it uh, showed that 99% of Afghanistan's people are in favor of Sharia law. And yet right now what we are seeing on the media, on the news, is that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people are waiting at the uh, airport in Kabul, uh, waiting, uh, they are trying to escape the country and, and go to the West as refugees. So the question is a valid question. If so many, if, if the majority of the population is in favor of Sharia law, and what, which is what the Taliban is going to impose or has already imposed, then why are they so desperate to leave the country? So let's understand why it is so. Firstly, there are many people in Afghanistan over the past 20 years who worked with the U.S. occupation force, the U.S., the U.S., uh, the puppet government, you could say, the, the Taliban and other people call it the puppet government, the U.S. imposed government of Afghanistan, whether it was Hamid Karzai or whether it was Ashraf Ghani, they, they, are, they are seen by many people in Afghanistan as a foreign occupying, I mean, is a, is a representative of a foreign occupying force. And the people who worked with this government, either in various forms of uh, uh, positions in the government machinery or as translators for the US Army, etc., they are seen as collaborators, as traitors. So many people over the past two decades have worked either in the government or they have helped the US uh, Army in various ways. These people will face some for, form of retaliation 
from the Taliban. It will happen sooner or later. So there are thousands of such people. So they all want to leave the country. There are many people, especially the English-speaking elite, the 1% of the 1% who are seen as collaborators, whether they are people who have worked in the uni various universities in the US-led universities in Afghanistan, etc., the academic uh, class, etc. They all are seen as collaborators by the Taliban. They could face uh, repercussions. And that's why they also want to leave the country. Right. And then there is also the fact that Afghanistan is a very poor, war-torn country. There is no infra infrastructure. There is almost no future in the next 20 years. You know, it's going to take uh, at least two decades to rebuild the country to some semblance of normalcy. It's a country that has been under foreign occupation. It has been at, at war either with occupying forces or with itself since 1979. Right. It's been decades. So it's a country where the prospects are very bleak. So people want to leave the country, not because there is Sharia law in Afghanistan now, but because they seek a better future in the West. They are leaving as economic refugees, right? They seek These are economic migrants. They seek bet, a better life in the West or in India or somewhere else, anywhere but Afghanistan. The situation is so bad. It's not about Sharia law. It's about the fact that Afghanistan has, has been turned into a hellhole by these by various forces over the decades. So the people are desperate to leave. And when the when this final evacuation is happening as we speak right now, they are desperate to be on the planes that are going out of Kabul. So that's what's happening. And the fact is that the media is only focusing on what's happening at Hamid Garzai International Airport in Kabul. It's not focusing on the rest of the country where people are just sitting tight and there's no desperation, there's no exodus from anywhere else. The All the focus of the media is on the airport in Kabul. And that's why we are getting the impression that the whole country is desperate to leave. There are definitely thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who are trying to leave at this point in time, but the entire country is not scrambling to get out. So we have to understand that the media is very good at creating certain perceptions. Those perceptions do not reflect the actual reality on the ground all, overall over the entire country. It's only focused in one location in Kabul. So that is why we are getting this impression. But it is certainly true, according to this, this poll, that the majority of the population, 99% or more, want Sharia law. So I hope that answers this question. Let's move on to question number two. These are three questions in one. Swastika says, who are the ISIS-K? Are they linked with the Talibans or are they against them and why? Why are they killing people? Does Pakistan have a role in this and what should India do? Omkar says, which ethnic group consists the majority of the terrorists of ISIS-K? Reports of Indian fighters from Kerala have also come up. And Akash says, considering the recent bombings at Kabul airport, the question arises, what is the ISIS-K trying to do in Afghanistan? What are the motives? And can they be counted as a crucial player there? So the basic question is, who are these people? Who are the ISIS-K? Are they related to the Taliban? Or are they related to Pakistan? Or are they independent players? So let's, so let's look at the history of this terrorist outfit. 
as we know, this ISIS or ISIL or Daesh group came up sometime about a decade ago, maybe less than a decade ago, in the Middle East, in the Iraq-Syria region, right? Uh, and eventually, after within a few years, they had uh, created a stronghold. They had occupied parts of Syria and parts of northern Iraq, etc., where they ran, ran their own caliphate under Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Now, in 2015 or so, a Pakistani branch of this terrorist outfit was created. I think uh, ISIS or ISIL, whatever you call them, sent a few representatives to Pakistan and they were able to create a branch of this outfit in Pakistan which owed allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Now, this is a terrorist outfit. Uh, They are, I think, mostly Pashtuns. They are all recruited from the people in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, which is mostly a Pashtun region. It's a region where you have people of Pashtun ethnicity and culture. So I think more or less they are most likely, the majority of them seem to be Pashtuns. And their objective is to create ISIS-K. They are called ISIS-K. K stands for Khorasan. Khorasan is essentially parts of northeastern Iran, Afghanistan, parts of Afghanistan. And parts of uh, the Pashturistan region of Pakistan, right? So this is an ancient province. It's an ancient name, Khorasan. The word Khorasan comes from the Sanskrit Swarasthan. It was corrupted into Khorasan, and that is this region. So ISIS-K wants to create a separate autonomous uh, caliphate in the Khorasan region. Eventually, they may also have their designs, their eyes on India, right? So that is what ISIS-K is. They are not linked with the Taliban. They have uh, they they have entered into conflict with the Taliban, whether it's the Pakistani Taliban or the Afghan Taliban, on various occasions. So they don't have a good relationship with these people. Uh, are the ISI involved in this in some way? Well, the ISI has its fingers everywhere. If there is any terrorist outfit in this region, the ISI has some sort of connection with them. That is for sure. So I would say that, yes, it is very... Uh, it is very possible, possibly very likely that the ISI may have had some some kind of involvement in the activities of the ISIS-K. There were these recent bombings a couple of days ago at, at the Kabul airport, two bomb blasts, which targeted those unfortunate people trying to leave the country. Uh, many, uh, I, I, The last I heard, more than 170 Afghan civilians had died in this, and at least 12 American uh, soldiers also died in that. It seems that... Uh, Many of the Afghans who died were killed in as a result of the firing that these American soldiers did in panic after the blasts. Anyway, that's what happened. So that is the thing. So ISIS-K is a local terrorist outfit. It's not a major terrorist outfit. It's not one of the, one of the major players. The major players are the Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistan Taliban, the Haqqani Network, the Afghan Taliban. ISIS-K is one of these... Uh, well, one of these new flavors of terrorists that that operate in the region. There are so many different terrorist groups that operate within within this region, especially on Pakistani soil. The ISI has connections with all of them to some level. And they all have the same ideology, the same worldview, but they have different leaderships. And they want their own leadership, their own people to be in power. They, they, they want to come to power and they want to rule over the, over the region. So that's why there are these conflicts between all of them. So that is in brief about ISIS-K. Okay, next question. Akash says, 
historical one since all this mess began with the soviet invasion of afghanistan can the erstwhile ussr be blamed for the disastrous afghanistan situation as much as the united states and why did the soviet union try to capture it anyway cons- considering that it consisted of half of the planet's land mass already so the, the main question is why did the ussr Afga- invade afghanistan it already had almost half the world's land mass well it's the game of geopolitics is about global domination no matter how much territory or influence you have it's never enough you want more right so what happened is that in 1978 in afghanistan there was a coup it was called the saur revolution i think it was in april 1978 uh there were it, it essentially it was a communist takeover of afghanistan uh, the local communist uh, party or or out, political outfit under a guy called hafizullah amin they engineered a coup and they were able to seize power in kabul and over a very short period of time over just 3 months or so this individual called hafizullah amin he unleashed a wave of terror in afghanistan he he executed he ordered the executions of thousands of afghans who were who he perceived as being opposed to his ideology communism socialism etc and all that and and who he saw as political opponents so it was a wave of terror in just 3 months so the revolution was a communist takeover of afghanistan it was certainly aligned in favor of the ussr it was a pro ussr revolution a pro ussr coup and regime that was installed now this guy hafizullah amin he made so many enemies in just 3 months that it the situation became very volatile and there was a very strong possibility that there would be a counter revolution a counter coup in which this highly unpopular person and this highly unpopular uh regime would be overthrown and some other uh political dispensation would come to power so that was the situation the coup was successful the communists took over but this crazy person hafizullah amin threatened the stability of the country and of the new regime so to protect their new found investment or their new found uh, uh advantage in afghanistan the ussr decided to invade afghanistan and secure kabul and secure the regime in kabul so that is what precipitated the ussr's invasion of afghanistan because they found that there is a pro ussr regime but its uh, its its uh, future is being threatened by the actions of this one person so the soviets invaded afghanistan they took over kabul and they executed hafizullah amin and put somebody else in his in his place and then there was this long war of attrition the U- us got involved via pakistan this mujahideen strategy was created these mujahideens were portrayed as great freedom fighters heroes and there was even a rocky movie made in which they they are portrayed as freedom fighters fighting the soviets and all that so is the ussr to be blamed for the disastrous situation no not exactly i mean yeah you could say that this is this 1979 invasion is what precipitated the precipitated the uh the situation that we are we see today in afghanistan so in a way yes the that invasion did precipitate this entire period of instability and the complete a uh, gradual eventual destruction of the country's infrastructure and everything it did precipitate that but there is always a back story to this to understand what went wrong in afghanistan we have to go back a thousand years actually you know that's where everything started going wrong i spoke about that in the previous episode so you can look that up i'll not go into it again but 
the things that go that went wrong in afghanistan started a thousand years ago with the turkic invasion and occupation of northern india gandhar which was the, which is now afghanistan so that is in brief what happened mayuri says what future can we foresee in afghanistan for the in the next 10 to 20 years will the taliban survive a decade of governance or will it be overthrown by the resistance groups or another foreign invasion please answer so what you are essentially asking is will the taliban survive a decade in power a decade of governance well i would say that the americans have given the taliban the best possible chance of surviving the next decade uh they have left the whole country they have essentially handed the country over on a plate to the taliban they have left behind billions tens of billions of dollars of uh, weaponry and all that in afghanistan helicopters and other equipment and so much more and uh, they are also kind of cooperating with the taliban as we speak they have given over everything uh the afghan army somehow just evaporated into thin air i don't think that's a coincidence so it looks like the americans want the taliban they want the taliban to take over they want the taliban to be secure at least for some time in power in afghanistan uh, they may even grant them some sort of legitimacy in the international uh, domain maybe at the united nations level or something so we don't really know as of today as things stand today what is the long term objective of the us what do they intend to do why have they done this but it looks like the taliban may actually be uh, able to secure their hold on the country it all depends on the situation in northern afghanistan and the panjshir valley there are, there are uh, other actors involved there is china there is russia there is tajikistan there is pakistan there is the us there is india also at some at some level and all that it's a complex situation but it may be possible that the taliban may survive the russians and the chinese are actually working with the taliban right they 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 are happy with the fact that there is a new government over there a non a, a government that is not pro us so uh, things are uh, quite volatile the situation is quite fluid as of now but it is not inconceivable that the taliban may be able to stay in power for a decade or even two decades it all depends on how they play, what cards they play and how the international community especially the big players they Uh, deal with the taliban and how they are able to use their various forms of leverage on the taliban to extract whatever they all want from the country so it's it remains to be seen ashutosh says why did the us military leave behind 85 billion worth of weapons in afghanistan was it to destabilize the whole middle east uh, as it was done in the past or was it a blunder see the americans don't see afghanistan as part of the middle east they they see the middle east as one geographical region and they see the afghanistan pakistan region as another geographical region they call it afpak which is part of the larger so called south asia region in american eyes okay so uh leaving behind so much weaponry in afghanistan will not destabilize the middle east in any way it will actually strengthen the taliban because the taliban has come into has, has become the custodian of all this weaponry 85 billion i'm not sure if that is the right number maybe maybe it is i'm not sure i have not actually evaluated what is the ex- exact monetary value of the weaponry 
that the Americans have left behind. It's definitely in the tens of billions of dollars. It may be 85, possibly billions worth. So the Taliban now is in possession of all this weaponry and it strengthens the Taliban a lot. Some people have been reporting that the Taliban have been sending some of it to Pakistan. That is not the case. The Taliban will keep it for themselves. Now we're going to see a kind of power struggle of some sort. The ISI will try and uh, try to consolidate their hold over the Taliban. The ISI means the Pakistan army and the establishment. They will try and uh, try and establish some sort of leverage with the Taliban, which they had in the past. Now it's kind of evaporated. The Russians will want to influence the Taliban. The Chinese will want to influence the Taliban. The Americans also will want to influence the Taliban in some way. So we're not really sure why the Americans have left behind so much weaponry. The only explanation is that they want the Taliban to be free to some extent from external influences. For instance, in the past, the Pakistanis had a great deal of leverage with the Taliban. Everything The Taliban owed everything to Pakistan. It was created by the ISI under during the time of Benazir Bhutto. It was armed by the ISI and the Pakistanis using American weaponry. It, the funds that the Taliban received were given by the Pakistanis, which the, that funding came from the US again. So the Pakistan, Pakistanis were the middlemen and all the weaponry and funds and everything was coming from the US and the Taliban was benefiting from this. So the Taliban was completely under the control of the Pakistanis. Now what's happened is that in the absence of any resistance, they have been able to take over the country almost overnight and they have come into possession of all this weaponry, $85 billion perhaps worth of weaponry and so much cash also and so much other things. So it's like they are now a legitimate government almost and they no longer depend on Pakistan to some extent, especially if the Chinese get involved and the Russians get involved because the Chinese and the Russians don't really trust the Pakistanis. They see the Pakistanis as uh, as mercenaries essentially. They will play each side against each other. So that's what's happening. So Americans clearly wanted the Taliban to break free from Pakistan to some extent. So it is not to destabilize the Middle East. It is to, it it seems like it is to establish the, the Taliban as a legitimate and strong uh, political player, geopolitical player in the region. It looks like that was the intention. Pratik uh, asks, what exactly is making the superpower, the US, the UN, etc., so powerless that they have to settle with and accept the fact that the nation is now being run by terrorists officially. The United States is the only major superpower as of today. They are not powerless. They have engineered the situation in which a nation is being run by terrorists. They have ensured that the nation was handed over to these terrorists on a platter. They have ensured that they left behind billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of weaponry and mountains of cash and much more ammunition, arms, weaponry, cash, and uh, possibly fuel supplies and whatnot, right? The Americans have ensured this. And the United Nations, like I've said, it is nothing but an instrument of powerful countries like the US and the, and the Chinese. I would say the US still control the UN more than, more than the Chinese do. So the UN is essentially not getting involved in Afghanistan at all. The UN 
will lecture India on Kashmir, but they will keep quiet about what's happening in Afghanistan under the Taliban. That is the reality of the United Nations. It is not an organization that we need to take seriously. So they are not involved in Afghanistan. They are doing nothing apart from tweeting something. Yeah. And the US is not powerless. The US can bomb the Taliban to the Stone Age tomorrow if they want to. They have chosen not to. They have chosen to give the Taliban the country on a plate. So there is some long-term geopolitical game being played of, as of today, as of right now. Any geopolitical analyst, if you ask them, they can only speculate as to what, what is happening. But the Americans definitely have a, a long-term plan for the region. And this is part of that process. The handing over of Afghanistan to the Taliban without any, any real resistance. So yes, the country is now being run by terrorists officially. Maybe very soon this terrorist designation may be removed and they may be, well, considered, they may be given the title of the legitimate government of Afghanistan. This may happen very soon, maybe next six months, maybe one year, maximum two years. It may actually happen, maybe even sooner. So that is the situation right now. There's a long-term geopolitical game being played and it, is, it has all been engineered by the United States. By the US, not anybody else. Aman says, what could the US have done in Afghanistan otherwise, instead of downright midnight retreat? Yeah, so I think you're referring to the fact that they left the Bagram Air Force base overnight without informing the Afghans. They just disappeared in the night. That's what they did. And of course, they have vanished from Afghanistan. They are almost in the process of concluding their vanishing act from Afghanistan. I think they are planning to depart by the 31st of August. Today is the 28th. So a couple of days left, two or three days left for that. So what could the Americans have done differently? The world is seeing this as a botched up operation. The Americans are looking very bad right now. Joe Biden is looking very embarrassed in front of the uh, cameras, etc. It looks like a humiliating defeat for the Americans. But the fact is that they chose to leave in this manner. So they are willing to look stupid, to look foolish, to look embarrassed, humiliated, etc. For the sake of some kind of long-term geopolitical game. It is very clear that they could have chosen to leave in a different manner. They could have taken another three months to leave. It was their choice to leave right now in the manner that, manner that they did. They could have waited another three months, another six months, another two years if they, if they wanted. No one was stopping them. They chose to leave in this manner. So what could they have, could they have done differently? They could have waited another month before they left. And they could have made a list of all the people who could be targeted by the Taliban after the Americans leave. And they could have taken those people out of the country. Slowly, gradually, in an in a orderly manner. As opposed to the chaotic scenes you're seeing at Kabul airport right now. People are desperate to climb over the over the uh, walls of the airport. And the American soldiers are pushing them back and throwing them into the, into the ditch and all that. So these are the people who actually have American visas. You know, uh, special immigrant visas and all that. These are people who worked for the Americans as translators or as, as very staff in the embassy or, or in various other, other uh, capacities. So most of these people have American visas. So if these visas were issued, then the Americans could have waited another month or two months and they could have evacuated all these people and ensured that everybody gets to leave 
instead of leaving them behind the way they are being left right now so this is one thing that could they could have done differently and i don't understand why they had to leave the bagram air, air force base overnight if they had held on to the base then that could have helped them in the evacuation process so there are many things they could have done differently but they chose not to do it that way they have chosen they have made a conscious decision to leave in the manner that they have left today so there is a reason for that as of today we don't know what is the reason one can only guess at what the reason could be one can only speculate it will be more clear maybe a decade down the line but there is clearly um a certain plan which is which we are currently seeing in action uh next question is why is india allowing afghan muslims to come to india when there are 57 islamic countries for them will they not cause problems for india in the future see the, india is not opening its doors for all the afghans to come in many afghans want to come to india in the past when the najibullah regime fell many uh many members of the regime were given refuge in india they they are living in delhi even today i think members of the uh, family members of the government officials etc as of today india has not opened its doors to thousands of afghans come in whoever wants to come in it's not like that india has given asylum to very specific very selected individuals just a handful of individuals who are mostly afghan mps or afghan personnel who worked as staff in the US, in the in the indian embassy so people who are closely connected with india or certain chosen people from the uh, erstwhile afghan government members of parliament etc it's a handful of people maybe 200 300 i am sure it's not more than 500 so it's a very small selected group of people who have been offered asylum in india they have been evacuated out of afghanistan via indian air force flights and they are in india now uh, recently we heard i mean i think yesterday or day before yesterday there was some afghan mp a female mp who came into india via turkey via istanbul and she and she tried to enter india and and uh, seek asylum she was deported out of india so it's clear that the indian government has a very specific plan a very specific set of individuals whom they have chosen to receive asylum in india it's not open to everybody it's they are not we are not allowing thousands of people to just walk into the country it's not like that and the fact that we currently do not have an open border with afghanistan also helps in that so we are able to hand pick the people whom we evacuate out of afghanistan and other people who come in via other means they are actually being deported so it is not uh, the kind of situation maybe that the re- media may be reporting i'm not sure what the media is saying but it's certainly not a free for all ki- for for all kind of situation we are hand picking just a small number of individuals to come into india Abhishek asks what could be Tajikistan's role in Afghanistan anti Taliban rebels and should ISIS K and the Northern Alliance join hands to destroy their common enemy that is Taliban okay to answer this question let me show you where is Tajikistan i am sure many of you may not be very clear about where it is let me share the map and demonstrate where this place is here's the map So this here is India this is India's Jammu and Kashmir region Gilgit Baltistan this is Pakistan this here as you can see 
is Afghanistan. And to the north of Afghanistan, we have this country called Tajikistan. So Tajikistan is just a few kilometers from India, actually. And we still know, most Indians don't even know about it. So the question is, what could be Tajikistan's role in Afghanistan? With, uh, in the context of the anti-Taliban uh, rebellion or, or uh, resistance that is brewing in northern Afghanistan. So uh, the northern part of Afghanistan is ethnically Tajik. The Tajik people are an Indo-Iranian people, right? They are not Pashtuns. They speak uh, the Dari language, if I'm not mistaken, which is a form of Persian. Uh, I'm sure there must be some Tajik dialect of Persian as well. So the, and and uh, this uh, in this gentleman, Amrullah Saleh is a Tajik, for example. And so is Ahmad Masood, the son of Ahmad Shah Masood. So these are ethnic Tajiks, Afghan's ethnic Tajik minority. They uh, they live in northern Afghanistan. And so the, the country of Tajikistan definitely has an affinity for these people. They will definitely try and help them resist the Taliban. So uh, that is Talib, uh, Tajikistan's role in this. There could be some supplies coming in for the northern for the northern alliance from Tajikistan in the forms of either food supplies or weaponry or ammunition or fuel, etc. So there is definitely the possibility of that happening. So that is Tajikistan's role in very brief. Should ISIS K and Northern Alliance join hands to to uh, fight against their common enemy, which is Taliban. I do not see the Northern Alliance ever joining hands with ISIS-K. ISIS-K is a terrorist organization. The Northern Alliance is what remains of the erstwhile Afghan government. So Amrullah Saleh was a member of the uh, of the of the Ashraf Ghani government. He is currently in the Panjushir Valley. He is part of the Northern Alliance. He has allied himself with, I believe, Ahmad Masood. So these people are trying to resist the Taliban. They are what remains of the previous government. The previous government was trying to destroy the terrorists, including the Taliban, including the ISIS-K. So their ideologies are very different. Their worldviews are very different. The future they want for for Afghanistan is very different. I mean ISIS-K and the Northern Alliance. So I do not see any possibility of them joining hands and fighting the Taliban. The ISIS-K will fight Taliban on its own. The Northern Alliance will fight the Taliban on its own. There are so many different outfits and groups involved in this. But it is highly unlikely, in my opinion, for the ISIS-K to join hands with the, with the Northern Alliance to resist the Taliban. Anshul says, why was the US not able to entirely eliminate the, the Taliban in two decades? Well, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, within a few months, they were able to wipe out the Taliban's presence in most of Afghanistan, right? So they were able to do it. And for for, for years, for almost two decades, they kept on having these, conducting these military operations against the Taliban in Afghanistan. They conducted drone strikes many, many, many times. They They conducted drone strikes even within Pakistan. But we have to understand that the source, the origin of the Taliban is Pakistan. And the Americans did not go after the real source, the real origin of the, of the Taliban, which is the ISI, which is the Pakistani military. 
the Americans knew what was happening. They knew that the ISI is sheltering the Taliban on Pakistani soil. They knew the Pakistani army is involved. It was well known. It was well accepted by the Americans. They knew what they were doing. They did not want the Taliban to be destroyed. They knew that the Taliban and the ISI and the Pakistani army are causing the deaths of thousands of US soldiers. I think three or 4,000 US soldiers, maybe 3,000 or so, roughly, have died in the past 20 years in Afghanistan. It is all at the hands of the Taliban or the ISI or the Pakistan army in various guises. The Americans knew it and they were clearly fine with it. So the Americans chose not to destroy the Taliban. The Taliban, they, they, were, they were targeting the Taliban in Afghanistan, but they were not crossing the border and destroying the source of the Taliban, which is the Pakistani establishment, the Pakistani military. So it is a long-term geopolitical game. The Americans have always needed a few bad guys in the world. They've always needed these bad guys. If there are no bad guys in the world, then how can the Americans play the role of the super cop? So that's why they have nurtured bad guys from time to time over the decades. And the Taliban is one of these bad guys. The ISI is one of these bad guys. So the past 20 years, the Americans knew full well that the Taliban is alive and well. It is, it is prospering across the border to the south in Pakistan. And they allowed it to happen. So that is why the Taliban have survived. And now they are back. And now they have taken over Afghanistan. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, after the blast at Kabul airport, many politicians, including party members of Donald Trump, are criticizing Joe Biden. According to you, what is the geopolitical condition of America right now? Is Joe Biden a good decision maker? So that's the question. The geopolitical condition is that, see, overall in this decade, the US is declining in power on a global level. Its influence is declining there seems to be a significant decline of U.S. influence in Central Asia, in Afghanistan. The Pakistanis have now moved over to the Chinese camp. So again, U.S. influence has declined steadily and significantly in this region, in the Afghan-Pakistan region. The Chinese are rising. The, the, the strength and power and influence of China is rising. So overall, the U.S. seems to be a declining power and China seems to be a growing power. So that is the overall big picture geopolitical condition of the United States right now. Uh, the, the Republican Party is indeed criticizing Joe Biden for what's happened. Is Joe Biden a good decision maker? You know what? Joe Biden is closer to 100 than he is to 60. He's a very elderly person. He, I'm not even sure if he knows what he's doing. You know, So this shows you that you don't need a functioning president to run a country. And it's not like Kamala Harris is in charge either. There is something else at work. The United States is a different kind of country. And what we are witnessing could be what they call the deep state in action. So the deep state is what actually runs the country. That's what is alleged. You know, the deep state is the, uh, the, career, the career bureaucrats in the state department and various other departments. And uh, their ties with the arms industry and other corporations, etc. They are the ones who actually run the country. So when you have somebody like Joe Biden who doesn't even know what sometimes what he is doing, when he says something, when he starts a sentence, by the end he finishes the sentence, he's not. Sometimes he doesn't remember what he was saying at the beginning. So that's the kind of mental state this 
person is in he's clearly not fit not quite fit to be a high functioning adult that's very clear so is he a good decision maker no i mean it doesn't matter see the us foreign policy is run by the state department it's always been run by the state department there have been times when the us presidents have been very very uh, superficially involved in the decision making there have been times like when you had ronald reagan when the president himself was very strongly in control of the foreign policy but as of today joe biden doesn't know what's happening so it's clearly not him who is uh, di- dictating the foreign policy and the strategy the strategy of the us withdrawal from afghanistan he is just coming in front of the cameras and mumbling so that is what i would have to say in brief about joe biden i mean he he clearly is not in the best uh, shape to run a country but the country is definitely being run very competently so there are levels of governance etc in the us a number of fail safes etc so that's how the country is being run the state department is clearly in, in charge of what's happening at the foreign policy level in afghanistan and pakistan and other places so the country is running smoothly and they clearly know what they are doing they have a long term plan ayush says why are afghans not revolting like bangladesh did in 1971 and indians have been doing time and again for hundreds of years so let's understand what happened in 1971 today it looks like people are under the uh, under the under the belief that 1971 was the bangladeshi rebellion i mean people from bangladesh have been complaining to me when i spoke about bangladesh the 71 war they have been saying that you are wrong it is the bangladeshis who liberated the country it was the mukti bahini that, that, that fought the pakistanis and it only received some superficial assistance from india this is what is being taught in bangladeshi textbooks today that the 1971 war was mukti bahini against the pakistanis and the mukti bahini liberated the country with some small indian assistance and it looks like many people in india also seem to believe that 1971 was a bangladeshi rebellion here's what happened in 1971 in bangladesh there was a genocide going on the pakistani army was genociding the people of bangladesh minimum 1 million people died most likely 3 to 4 to 5 million bangladeshis died at the hands of the pakistanis this was a full scale genocide the bangladeshis were helpless there was nothing they could do to defend themselves it is the indian establishment the indian army that created this organization called the mukti bahini they created the organization they trained these people these ragtag rebels they armed them and then they sent them back into bangladesh to fight a rebellion against the pakistanis but un- unless the indian army and indian air force intervened the bangladeshis would never have had any success they would have never had a separate country of their own it is the indian army in its entirety that, that did everything that won that war the mukti bahini had a minimal influence in all these operations the bangladeshis owe their country to the indian army and nobody else the mukti bahini is just a fiction that was created to 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 give legitimacy to the fact that india wanted to uh, carve a separate country out of pakistan and basically dis- dissociate east pakistan from 
the overall country of Pakistan. So 1971 was not a rebellion by Bangladeshis. The Bangladeshis were helpless. They were dying. They were being massacred. They were being genocided. It is only because of the Indian army that they were able to get a country of their own. If the Afghans try to revolt against the Taliban, they will again face the same sort of massacre. The Afghans are not armed. The Afghan population, the civilian population is not armed. The Taliban have machine guns, they have weaponry, they have AK-47s. Now they have American equipment. Anybody who tries to rise up against the Taliban will be wiped out. It doesn't work like that. You know, the world is a different place. The, the theoretical world is different and the real world is very different. When you have a gun pointed at your face, the whole world changes. So the Afghans are in no position to revolt against the Taliban. And like I said, 99% of Afghans are actually happy. They wanted Sharia law. The Taliban are giving them Sharia law. The US-led government of Ashraf Ghani was quite corrupt. The governance was very poor. There was no law and order. There was only order to some extent, but there was no justice. In Sharia law, there is a form of justice. It's a very brutal justice, but it is at least there is justice now. The Taliban uh, people will impose Sharia law and they will dispense justly very justice very swiftly. So at least some form of justice will be given to the people of Afghanistan, which is something they lacked for the past 20 years. So the majority of Afghans are actually happy that now there is a functioning government who will actually dispense justice. So the Taliban is a, is a welcome change for most people in Afghanistan. So I don't see any reason why they would revolt against the Taliban regime. Binoy asks, how is this Taliban group different from the other Taliban of 1996 to 2001 era? So that is a very interesting question. Uh, the 1996 Taliban was a medieval kind of regime. They were completely closed to the world. They did not give press conferences, etc. You know, So the new Taliban that you see today is quite tech-savvy. Tech they are very conscious of the kind of PR, the kind of image they want to project to the world. They are, uh, they have their official spokespeople, spokespersons who give press conferences, who say the right things. We will allow women to study. We will allow women to work. We will give full rights to women. We will give justice to everybody. We will give amnesty to the people who collaborated with the Americans. They are saying the right things. They're making the right noises. They are going on all these different media channels, like CCTV of China and uh, RT of Russia and uh, Al Jazeera and CNN also. They are writing columns in the Washington Post and the New York Times. I'm not sure. Some, some American newspapers and publications. So there is a significant diplomatic, uh, not diplomatic, I would say PR. There's a PR blitz going on right now. And there's clearly elements of the media in the West that are, that are involved in this as well. So this is a very different Taliban. It's a more tech-savvy Taliban. They are tweeting on a regular basis. They have two, three accounts on Twitter. They still don't have blue ticks, but the, they are very active on Twitter. And uh, so there is a very cons uh, very well-planned, well-thought-out, concerted media campaign, public relations campaign. So it, it all looks nice. They understand how the West works, how the mind of the West works. The Western media also is, is helping them to some extent. So they are able to project a certain image of themselves, which may not be reflected on the, on the ground level, on the, in, in, on the streets. 
the Taliban on the streets, maybe the same Taliban as 96. But in the cyber sphere, in the in the in the public domain, it, it is a very different Taliban. So they are projecting their the, this image of a more progressive, slightly more liberal, more tolerant regime. So that is the difference from the Taliban of 1996. At the ground level, they are much the same. They have been doing the same reprisals and the same brutality as the as in the past. But they are more tech savvy. They are aware of the need to project a certain image. And they seem to have certain allies in the media in the West. And uh, well, Twitter is allowing them to tweet, even though they are still a designated terrorist organization in many countries. But this, they are still being allowed by the, by the, by the folks at Twitter to continue tweeting. So there's some, clearly something going on at, at several levels. Srijesh says, although ISIS Khorasan has claimed the recent bomb blast near the Kabul International Airport, do you think there might be an ISI role behind this? Uh, it is always a possibility. The ISI, like I said, has its fingers in almost every terrorist organization that is uh, active in this in this entire region. So I am sure that the ISI has some sort of connections with these so-called ISIS Khorasan. See, there are so many little terrorist outfits. They are just different flavors or different hats that these people wear, but their ideology is the same. Their worldview is the same. Their objectives are the, are the same. So the, I, the ISI will definitely be working with, with all of them. Now this recent bomb blast which happened, it did not kill any Taliban people, first of all. No Taliban members were killed. American soldiers died, I think 12 of them. And a number of Afghan civilians died, those who were trying to escape the country and go to the West. So in no way has this bomb blast harmed the Taliban or any other asset of the ISI. Now the official statement is that the ISIS Khorasan has taken claimed responsibility for this attack. And the Taliban have also blamed them. The US also is blaming them. So is the ISI behind this? It is a possibility. What do they want? They want to punish uh, some Afghans who are trying to escape the country and they want to perhaps kill a few American soldiers. So it is definitely a possibility that the ISI may be behind this outfit. They may also use this outfit, ISIS Khorasan, to try and control the Taliban also in case the Taliban try to uh, break free of the ISI. So this may be another tool in the arsenal to continue to hold some leverage in Afghanistan. That is also a possibility. Preetesh says US left weapons, etc. Um, all that. Uh, what's the other question? The Tajikistan is airdropping weapons for Amrullah Saleh and Ahmad Masood. India has the Farkhor Air Base in Tajikistan. Indian Air Force aircrafts are routing through Tajikistan to bring Indians from Kabul. And if we look back, Amrullah Saleh was India's favorite Organi. So can we say that India is also playing its cards in Afghanistan? Okay, so you're talking about the Farkhor Air Base in Tajikistan. One second. So here we have Tajikistan. I think Farkhor Air Base is somewhere nearby. There are two air bases that India is alleged to operate. One is the Farkhor Air Base. 
the other one is the Aini Airbase. Let me take a look at one of these Aini Aini Airbase, Tajikistan. It's here. Let's take a look at the satellite imagery. So this looks like a proper airbase. This is in Tajikistan. I don't see any hangars where you could keep fighter planes. Uh, you do see some helicopters here on the on the tarmac and a couple of aircraft. But you don't see any Sukhois or any fighter jets. And you don't see any hangars where you could keep those fighter planes. But certainly you could land a Sukhoi 30 aircraft on this airstrip for sure. And the other one is the Farkhor airbase. Let me take a look at that. Farkhor. Where is that? Let's try to take a look at that. Okay, this is Farkhor airbase again in Tajikistan. As you can see, this is not that well developed. So this is clearly an airbase that is not quite operational from what I see. Right? So I am not sure to what extent India is operating their, these air bases. Do we have a significant presence there? Do we not have a presence there? So it's not quite clear. Maybe it is not supposed to be clear. Maybe it's this information is not supposed to be in the public domain, which I would very well understand. So uh, I heard that one of these air bases was kept on standby for the Indian Air Force while evacuating its citizens and other people from Kabul. I am not sure it was actually used. Now, uh, like you say that Amrullah Saleh was India's favorite. Was he really India's favorite? I think he's the media's favorite. The Indian media is currently portraying him as a friend of India or something. Uh, I think India may have preferred Amrullah Saleh over Ghani, but I'm not really sure about that. You know, So is India playing its cards from, from in Afghanistan, from Tajikistan? Uh, the potential of playing India's cards is there. I think at this point in time, India is more in a wait and watch kind of situation. Let's evacuate our people and our allies from Afghanistan. And then maybe at some level, we will play some cards and see how it goes. But as of today, I don't think India is really playing, is really getting involved in any significant way in Afghanistan. It's, I think it's a little too early for India to do that. Things are very fluid right now. Let the Americans withdraw in a couple of days. Then we will see how things go. Then we can get into it if required or when required. Ashna says, what role does terrorism play in geopolitics apart from suffering and misery? And Shubhankari says, what leads to the rise of militant groups? Why aren't governments able to control them? What can be done to prevent them from forming and what can be done to seize them from existence once they are there? See, terrorism plays a significant role in geopolitics. From the 1970s and 80s onwards, there have been these terrorist outfits. I, I remember in the 1980s, when I was a kid, there was this group called Abu Nidal. Abu Nidal group in Lebanon, was it? Or Libya? It was in the Middle East region. So these were groups that targeted the Americans, I think, and the Western assets. And over the years, over the decades, various powers, whether it's the USSR, whether it's the US, whether it's the Chinese, they have all leveraged these, they have all made use of various terrorist organizations to 
achieve certain geopolitical objectives. The Americans used Pakistan as a proxy against India, and the Pakistanis used various terrorist outfits as proxies in India. In India. So you could say overall these were, these were U.S. proxies during the Kashmir issue in the 1990s and all, when there was so much terrorism in India. Even during the 1980s Khalistan thing, and in the northeast, the Chinese have been have been sponsoring and and uh, supporting these various Naga terrorist outfits, uh, which is very well documented. So these are very well very. These are definitely used. Terrorist outfits are definitely used in geopolitics to wage proxy warfare against countries to make a country bleed by a thousand cuts. That has especially been used against India. It has also been used in the Middle East to keep the entire region on, on the boil for decades. Since the 1940s and 50s, you've always had this, these conflicts in the Middle East. In recent times, you have all these Hamas and etc., all these terrorist organizations. The PLO was also a terrorist organization. Uh, at least it was considered to be so at some time, at some point in time. So it is definitely one of the uh, tools in the geopolitical toolkit. It does play a significant role. For example, the Americans used ISIS uh, in in the Middle East, in Syria and Iraq. They then used the Al Qaeda against the ISIS when they wanted to dismantle the ISIS, and so on. So it's a very murky game. It definitely has a significant role in geopolitics. Now, Shubankari says, what leads to the rise of militant groups? Militant groups, terrorist groups emerge when there is an absence of power, when there is a power vacuum. Whenever there is a power vacuum in a geographical region, local warlords and local thugs and local gangsters will rise up and terrorize the people because that's that's what naturally happens. So these militant groups, terrorist groups, they rise out of power vacuums. And then you have big players like superpowers or other countries that sponsor these terrorist outfits and use them for various geopolitical uh, agendas. So that is why these uh, militant or terrorist groups rise and how they are sustained and well, they are certainly controlled by certain governments. The ISI has been controlling a number of, geo- of of terrorist outfits that have been targeting India. They have been controlling the Taliban. So they are certainly controllable as long as you have the right kind of leverage over them. So the Pakistanis were able to control the Taliban because they control all the funding. They control all the supplies of arms and ammunition, all the fuel, etc. So everything was controlled by the Pakistanis until now. When our government is not able to control them, they are unable to control them when they lose leverage over them. That's when these terrorist outfits run run free, they run amok. So it is certainly a, a phenomenon that has existed for a very long time. Uh, what can be done to prevent them from, 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 from forming? Well, don't allow a power vacuum to form. For example, in India also, you have this uh, Maoist terror outfits in various places. So it happens when the government doesn't pay attention to a certain region. It doesn't. It neglects this, that particular region, and that's how foreign forces are able to influence the, the people in that region and create these terrorist outfits with foreign funding and all that. So it's a simple thing. If there is a, an absence of of power, if there is an absence of uh, if there is a vacuum of power, then these outfits naturally emerge, especially when they are controlled by foreign. Uh, powers.
Parth says, with so much instability in Afghanistan and Pakistan, do you see a threat of Pakistani nukes falling into the hands of the Tehreek Taliban Pakistan, Taliban or the ISIS-K? Well, I do not see any possibility of Pakistani nuclear weapons falling into the hands of any terrorist outfit because these nuclear weapons are the prized possession of the Pakistan army. It is the only thing that prevents India from steamrolling Pakistan. It is the the one weapon they have that gives them this sense of in, invulnerability. So they would never allow any terrorist outfit, whether it's the Taliban or the Tehreek Taliban Pakistan or ISIS or whatever, they would never ever allow any of these outfits to get their hands on their nuclear weapons. These weapons would be very well guarded, right? And the Pakistani army is very strong. It is very powerful. It is a Punjab army. The Pakistani Punjab army, they are in they are in charge of Pakistan. They own an entire country. They run the country. They are all powerful. Why would they ever allow this to happen? The only pos- possibility of such a thing happening is if, is if the Pakistani army itself would disintegrate. But that is very unlikely unless an external force, unless an external power engineers the demise of the Pakistani army. But in such a case, they would also ensure that these nuclear weapons are, are secured before Pakistan disintegrates, so to say. So I think it is extremely unlikely that the Pakistani nuclear weapons would fall into the hands of the Taliban or any other terrorist outfit. It's highly unlikely at this point in time. Abhinav says, does India's decision to not have boots on the ground of Afghanistan, was this decision right? As India is still not in a position to project power outside. So the question is, should India have intervened militarily in Afghanistan or should it not have? India has not intervened militarily. India has not sent troops to Afghanistan. I think there were several requests in the past from the Americans for India to send a military contingent to Afghanistan to assist in the peacekeeping operations. And as the US withdrawal was became apparent, it would happen soon. There were also calls from the, I think, from the Ashraf Ghani government to send some support to the Afghan government. Now the question for India is, if India were to send soldiers, the Indian army, etc. to Afghanistan, what would India benefit from it? You don't send your army, your people to die in another another country unless there is a significant benefit for your country and for your national interest. And that is the question. And the second thing is that India is not in a position to uh, supply See, let's take a look at the map. So this is Afghanistan here, Afghanistan. This is Jammu and Kashmir. And as you can see on the map, Jammu and Kashmir is connected to Afghanistan via this region called the Wakhan Corridor. But in reality, this region is Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. It is occupied illegally by Pakistan. And we have allowed this to continue. So as of today, India does not have land access to Afghanistan. So if India were to airlift troops and put them in Afghanistan, then how would India supply them? How would India send supplies, fuel, food food material? How would India send ammunition, arms and ammunition and all those things? You need 
see an army it lives on logistics army is not about uh, only fighting it's about logistics an army cannot fight in a sustained manner without logistical supply routes so it's all about logistics and without land access to the country india cannot support its hypothetical army in afghanistan logistically and therefore it makes no sense it is almost like a suicide mission to send your soldiers on afghan soil when you are not in a position to continuously and reliably and sustainably resupply them as and when required and therefore it is not a good idea it was not a good idea for india to send its soldiers into afghanistan either for peacekeeping purposes or for the purpose of defeating the taliban even in the kargil conflict india refused to cross the border and chase the invading pakistan troops back on their soil and kill them on pakistani soil the indian government refused to to send indian soldiers even 1 inch on pakistan into pakistan territory so if india were to send its soldiers in afghanistan and we know that the root of all the terrorists is in pakistan then again india would not have been able to eliminate the root of the terror and therefore once again it makes no sense to go into afghanistan send your soldiers them without a proper military time bound objective it would be a similar it would it would end up becoming similar to the ik ipkf situation in sri lanka so i think it's a very good decision that india did not send soldiers there it would have been very foolhardy to do that so as of now what's happening is uh, it's the best possible outcome for india considering all this all the entire situation as of now india is not really in a situation to intervene there india has not yet built up built up its capability to project power beyond its borders in a sustainable manner i am sure india does have the ability if the politicians give the approval to quickly take over pakistan occupied kashmir or even break pakistan in half i'm sure india does the i'm sure the indian army air force etc do have the ability to do that but it cannot be done randomly it has to be done at the right time when the right conditions are in place so as of now it is a good thing india has not intervened militarily in afghanistan wait and watch is the policy which is the correct policy as of today uh world politics says the people of afghanistan love india and indians so is there any possibility to reunite afghanistan as an indian territory so i get this sentiment from lots of people many people say this many people have commented this that the people of afghanistan love india in the indian media you see this sentiment that the afghans love india and the northern alliance loves india certain politicians are friends of india and all that listen people according to the pew poll 99% of the people of afghanistan desire sharia law so you understand what is their culture it also indicates what is their world view now tell me can such people love india simple question it's it's a see when one people one country loves another country there has to be a very deep connection 
Now, there is definitely a DNA connection between India and Afghanistan. But there is also a DNA connection between India and Pakistan. FYI, does Pakistan love India despite the shared same DNA? No, the Pakistanis mostly hate India. The Afghans also have the same DNA as us. But their culture is the same as that of Pakistan. So what makes Indians think that Afghans love India? I know India has spent billions of dollars in Afghanistan building dams and bridges and roads and a parliament house and all. What did India achieve from that? Did India want to achieve some kind of love from the Afghan people? The culture that is in place in Afghanistan today is such that they can never love India. Do the people of Bangladesh love India today? Their culture is closer to the culture of Afghanistan today than to India. The people of Bangladesh don't have any warm feelings towards India. They prefer Pakistan over India today. If you see the younger generation of the Bangladeshi people. So this idea that we have in this country, in India, that the people of Afghanistan love India, that is a very misplaced idea. The Afghans have no love for India. They do not feel any warmth for India. They don't see the world from the perspective of DNA. Most Afghans think that they are the descendants of a lost Jewish tribe. Most Afghans see more in common with the Middle East when, and with Turkey and with uh, these countries than with India. So from the time, from the 18th century onwards, Afghanistan officially ceased to be a part of India during the time of Ahmad Shah, uh, not Ahmad Shah, sorry, this Durrani fellow, Ahmad Shah Abdali. It is at that time that Afghanistan officially became a separate country with a separate culture. And now that the last Hindus and Sikhs have left Afghanistan more or less, we basically have no ties with Afghanistan, cultural ties anymore. So Afghanistan is a foreign country now, understand that. The culture is very different. There is no cultural affinity with India. There is no love for India. India has to treat Afghanistan on the same level as the UAE or Oman or Qatar or Saudi Arabia. That is the culture of Afghanistan now. So this sentiment that the people of Afghanistan love India, it is a misplaced sentiment. They do not love India. They have no warmth for India. Their culture is almost the same, you could say, as the culture of Pakistan. The only reason they are allied with India to some extent is because they have this uh, issue with Pakistan. The Pakistanis have been bleeding Afghanistan for the past several decades. That is the only reason the Afghans have been allying with India because we have a common enemy. Apart from that, there is no love for India. Please, please understand that. So is there any possibility to reunite Afghanistan as Indian territory? Not in the next 100 years, at least. If we want to reunite the subcontinent, it's going to be a project that will take more than 100 years. It is impossible to reunite Afghanistan because the culture is so different. Forget about love. They, many of them hate India because of India's native culture and religion. They hate that. Okay, Sri John says, can you explain Pakistan-Iran relationship and can Iran border with Pakistan, can the Iranian border with Pakistan be used to send Balochistan freedom fighters as Afghanistan 
might fall in the hands of the Taliban. Uh, Afghanistan has fallen in the hands of the Taliban already. Uh, so the question you're asking in a roundabout way is, does Iran support the Balochistan freedom struggle against Pakistan? Now understand this. Okay, let's look at the map. So Balochistan is this region here. It is Western Pakistan, if you can see the mouse pointer. Now that is not the only part of Balochistan. There is only half of Balochistan. The other half is in Iran. So the Chabahar port in Iran is in the Iranian portion of Balochistan. So the Balochistan region is occupied by two countries, by Iran and by Pakistan. And the Balochistan freedom struggle is against both these foreign occupying powers. Understand that. The Balochistan people want freedom from Pakistan and also from Iran. So if the Balochistan freedom movement gains ground in Pakistan, it also represents a threat to Iran. And therefore, Iran does not support the freedom struggle of Balochistan. They are dead set against it. They see the Balochistan freedom struggle as a threat. They see the Balochistan freedom fighters as terrorists. So that is something the Pakistanis and the Iranians have in common. They both want to keep Balochistan subjugated. Gwadar is in the Pakistani part of Balochistan. Chabahar is in the Iranian part of Balochistan. Both of these countries are occupying Balochistan. So that is the truth. So the Iran border with Pakistan cannot be used to send Balochistan freedom fighters into Afghanistan because the Iranians see those people as terrorists. They would rather kill them than to help them. That is the situation. Krishna says, uh, as you said in the previous episode, India should engage with the Taliban. I said possibly India should should see what is the best possible uh, approach, long-term approach. So uh, one thing is that India will never be able to write the checks as large as the, as the Chinese. The Taliban will be totally under the control of China, isn't it? For example, if you give $100 million to the Taliban and say coordinate with, coordinate with us to break Pakistan, then China may give $250 million to go anti-India. So what can we do in this sort of situation? So what you are essentially asking, Krishna, is who has the most leverage on the Taliban? What does the Taliban, what is it that influences the Taliban? So to understand who has the most leverage and influence over the Taliban, we have to understand what does the Taliban want? What does it want in the next one year? What does it want to achieve in the next five years? What does it want to achieve in the next 10 years? If we understand that, then we can understand what forms of leverage can be used on the Taliban and who has the most leverage. So the Taliban, first of all, wants to secure the country. They want to stamp out all opposition, political, military, etc. opposition to them within the territory of Afghanistan. So the uh, Northern Alliance in the Panjshir Valley and the Northern regions of Afghanistan, that is a threat for them. It still exists. They are still fighting. So that is one thing. So they would want to stamp this opposition out. 
secondly they will want to establish a legitimate government and and gain international recognition as the legitimate government of afghanistan then they want to rebuild the country impose their form of uh, law sharia law whatever they call it on the country and they want to rule it forever essentially and once they have a sufficient strong a sufficiently strong hold on the country then their agenda is the pashtun nationalist agenda of reunifying the northwest frontier province of Afga- of pakistan with afghanistan so they have a long term territorial dispute with pakistan so these are the long term objectives of the taliban and therefore it is clear that in the long term the taliban will be a threat for pakistan now the chinese don't care about pakistan the chinese want to uh, to expand their sphere of influence they want to mine afghanistan they want to extract the lithium the various minerals the copper and what not which afghanistan has plenty of so they will work with the taliban to do that and of course their checkbook is larger than india's checkbook now the question is does the taliban see the see china as a reliable long term partner the taliban as we know they are an islamist regime they are imposing sharia law and they see all other islamic regions of the world as their brothers to some extent and they know what the chinese are doing in east turkestan in the xinjiang region to the uyghur people and therefore the taliban will not have warm feelings towards china they will certainly ally with china in the short term in exchange for international recognition and legitimacy in the international international uh, arena for their government so the chinese may be able to off- may be willing to offer them that if the taliban allows china to engage in the country in mining operations and maybe to use the country as a transit route for the belt and road project so the taliban will definitely need the chinese for some time so in that short duration of time in the next 5 years maybe maybe next 10 years the chinese will have a significant amount of leverage over the taliban the, the pakistani leverage will dwindle down very fast the russians will ally with the chinese so the russians and chinese will have the most leverage india will not have that much leverage maybe in the next 10 years but eventually as the taliban if they are able to last 10 years then they will definitely start targeting the pakistani occupied territory which is the pashtun homeland and they will want to reintegrate it with 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 afghanistan at that point in time the chinese may not want a new civil war to happen in this region because they have infrastructure projects and all that that's when the taliban may end up coming into conflict with the chinese that is when india can play its cards and that is when india may have significantly more leverage with the afghanistan taliban regime if it lasts that long so that is the long term geopolitical play what is the role of america in this that again is a big question right the americans do not want to see the chinese expand their influence in the world in the long duration so when such a thing happens if the taliban goes anti china and anti pakistan then india will have a role to play in this maybe a significant role 
and maybe the americans may also help the taliban at that point in time so there is always a long term objective what we are seeing right now is a day to day week to week kind of unfolding of events but the real game is long term it is decade by decade so the real question is what do the americans want in the next decade in the next two decades what do the chinese want in the next two decades what does the taliban want what does india want so it is in the long term that the real game is played so in the long term india may actually have more leverage than china over the taliban if the taliban last that long arun odai says is the capturing of afghanistan by taliban is helping the world for starting the next version of a world war and will this friendship between china and taliban help china become the next world power so i don't see any any next world war uh, happening anytime soon uh, it is it is not going to be beneficial for anybody a world war is a very destructive event people want to protect their investments a world war is destructive it destroys investments so nobody wants a world war now will the friendship between taliban and pakistan help china become the world power there is no friendship in geopolitics like i've said many times there are only temporary alliances there are convergences of interest in which case you have an alliance which is temporary and then you have a divergence of interest as things change so this uh relationship this nascent relationship between china and the taliban is more of china using the taliban to achieve a long term geopolitical objective it is not a friendship the chinese don't trust the taliban nobody trusts the taliban it is simply that you use whatever leverage you have over them to get them to do what you need and in exchange for them doing what you need you give them something in return that is how geopolitics is played there is no friendship and the taliban and afghanistan are just a small piece on the global chessboard the taliban are not in a position to make china a world power the china are already a, almost a world power <clears throat> excuse me they are not a superpower yet they don't have global power projection capabilities as of today but this temporary alliance with the taliban is only going to advance one chess piece on the chess board it is not going to make them a world power the taliban is an insignificant force on the global field afghanistan is a poverty torn impoverished country a very small minor country on the global geopolitical chess board so it is only going to advance china's strategy one move that's it that's all it is it is not going to make china a world power becoming a world power takes a lot of time a lot of planning lot of implementation which is what china has been doing for for the past 40 years so it is all of this investment that china has done in various spheres which is possibly going to make china a world power it has the, the taliban has nothing to do with that okay but taliban says that pakistan is their second home their friend so i had said that the rise of the taliban could be the beginning of the eventual end of pakistan i had said that in a previous episode so in response to that uh, this gentleman or person is saying that the taliban says that pakistan is their second home their friend so let me <laughs> repeat there are no friendships in geopolitics the taliban is a creature that the pakistanis created 
the ISI created the Taliban as an expendable tool in their long-term game, in their long-term agenda, in their long-term objective of destroying India. Pakistan, the Pakistan army, the ISI has only one obsession. It is an all-encompassing, all-consuming obsession. That obsession is India. India is their big prize. They want to conquer India one day and fly their flag from the Red Fort. That is their objective. The problem is not Kashmir. Kashmir is not the real problem. Even if India hands over Kashmir to Pakistan, they will we will never do that. If hypothetically somebody like Manmohan Singh, for example, were to hand over Kashmir to the Pakistanis, the Pakistanis will not suddenly become friendly with India. They will want more and more and more because the objective is to destroy India. As long as India is a sovereign country, the Pakistanis feel threatened. The Pakistan army feels threatened. And the fact that they portray India as the enemy is what gives legitimacy to the Pakistan army. It is what keeps them in power. So they have created this tool called the Taliban. It is made up of these poor Afghan Pashtun people who are treated as cannon fodder. They are all expendable. It doesn't matter how many Afghans die. The Pakistanis don't care. The Pakistanis want to fight India using the, the plan was to fight India, to bleed India with the Taliban. So the objective to create the Taliban was to create an Islamist organization which will eventually target India. And the plan was to use Afghanistan for strategic depth. So they wanted to fight India to the last Afghan. The Afghans were to be the cannon fodder. Now what happened is that they recruited the Taliban from all these uh, madrasas in which all these refugees were studying, Afghan refugees. What happened was that they ended up creating a Pashtun Taliban. It is definitely an Islamic Taliban, but it is also a Pashtun Taliban. It is almost exclusively Pashtun and it has given rise to Pashtun nationalism. So the Taliban has not exactly gone in the direction the Pakistan ISI establishment wanted them to go. They wanted the Taliban to have only an Islamic identity. But the Taliban has acquired a very strong Pashtun identity. And the Pashtun identity is very strongly anti-Punjab. See, there's a big, long history behind this. A thousand-year history. The Pashtuns were the first to be converted to Islam in India. Right? In, in Gandhar, in northern India. So they converted to Islam and then they started launching raids into India. The Gauris, the Ghaznavis. And they bled India. They, they perpetrated genocide in India. Cultural genocide. They massacred millions of Indians. Which includes the Punjabis. The Punjabis bore the brunt to a great extent of these Pashtun invasions after the Pashtuns were converted. Now eventually, the Punjabis, many of them also got converted to Islam. But this blood enmity, this ancient enmity remained. The Pashtuns hid the Punjabis. The Punjabis hid the Pashtuns. And during Maharaja Ranjit Singh's time, they gave it back to the Pashtuns. Maharaja Ranjit Singh was able to, to conquer large parts of Pashtun territory. And his, the border of his empire is today the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And that is why there is a significant Pashtun area within Pakistan. Now the Pakistan army is a Punjabi army. So they also have this ancient enmity with the Pashtuns, even though both sides are Muslims today. It is it goes beyond religion. It is a blood it is a blood enmity. It's like the 
Italian vendetta, which goes on for generation after generation. So, the Pakistanis, the Pakistan army, the Punjab army, created this Taliban force to bleed India, but they created a Pashtun force. And the Pashtuns hate the Punjabis. They hate the Pakistanis. So whatever the Taliban says doesn't matter. Words are cheap. If you want to understand the world, ignore words. See actions. Only see actions. Words, I mean, politicians say all kinds of words. They make all kinds of promises. Once they come to power, do they keep any promise? Words don't matter. Words are cheap. Ignore words. Focus on the actions. Now, the coming months, coming years will show us what the, what the Taliban truly feel about Pakistan and whether the rise of the Taliban is going to eventually end up being the end of the Punjab-Pakistan army. It could very well be. The Taliban do not see Pakistan as a friend. They may say today that Pakistan is their second home and their friend, but there are no friendships in geopolitics and there is a very old blood vendetta between the Punjabis and the Pashtuns. So it is not going to go in the way the ISI had envisioned. That is for sure. Okay, next question. Pakistan has been double-crossing the USA since day one. Could it be possible that the US has made a deal with Taliban to balkanize Pakistan since it is the root cause of all the trouble or is it just wishful thinking? See, the Americans knew very well what the Pakistanis were doing. There is not, it is not double crossing. It is it was all designed to be this way. They knew that the Pakistanis have created the Taliban. They knew they maybe perhaps even had a deal with the Pakistanis that we will invade and occupy Afghanistan. We will wipe out the Taliban to some extent from Afghanistan, but we will allow you to create to keep your guys, your Talibanis fighters within Pakistan, so that your geopolitical uh, objectives are also fulfilled in the long term. So maybe there was a deal between America and Pakistan. And maybe that's why they allowed the Pakistanis to keep sheltering the Taliban within Pakistan, even though it was costing the lives of American soldiers. You know, soldiers are just cannon fodder. They're expendable, doesn't matter. So it is not very much about double crossing. It is probably an agreement of some sort and an understanding that the Pakistanis and the Americans had at that time. Now, when the Americans invaded Afghanistan, the world was very different. They also wanted to punish India at the time for going nuclear. In 2021, the world has changed a lot and America's geopolitical objectives are very different. Today, Pakistan has gone into the Chinese camp. The Americans no longer see Pakistan as a useful ally. It may be a useful temporary ally of some sorts, but the Americans have never trusted Pakistan. There is no trust in geopolitics. There is no friendships. So today, Pakistan has gone into the Chinese camp, which the Americans will not be very pleased about. And uh, Pakistan could end up becoming a valuable asset for China because the Chinese will want to uh, access the warm waters of the Indian Ocean via Pakistan. They are building the China-Pakistan economic corridor, etc. So this alliance with Pakistan is going to strengthen China, China significantly. Secondly, the Chinese want to use Afghanistan as a transit route for their belt and road infrastructure. So the Americans today are focusing more on China because China is rising as a global competitor to the Americans. 
and uh, I have discussed this before that the Thucydides trap says that when an existing hegemonic power is confronted with the rise of a new hegemonic power, then war is almost inevitable. This is called the Thucydides trap. So the Americans may be planning for long term uh, for possibly eventual war with the Chinese or to delay China's projects or to sabotage Chinese projects such as the Belt and Road, road Infrastructure, the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, etc. So one of the ways to do this is to start a new civil war in this region using the Taliban, using the Pakistani Taliban to destabilize Pakistan, eventually possibly even balkanize Pakistan. So it is a possibility. I am not saying it is what's happening. I am not privy to what the American uh, planners are thinking. I am not privy to the thoughts. But it is definitely a possibility because now the Americans are, are seriously feeling threatened by the rise of China. So all their actions, their so-called withdrawal from Afghanistan, it is a price they are willing to pay. They are, they are willing to pay the price of looking like they have been humiliated and they like they have lost for a much bigger long-term geopolitical objective, which is to sabotage Chinese projects in this region. and. Certainly, balkanizing Pakistan would do the job. So that is certainly a possibility that we should not discount that the Americans may want to, let's say, balkanize Pakistan in the next 10 years or so. It is definitely a possibility. Sovik says, in a previous video, you said that the Indian government should use Taliban to dismantle Pakistan using Durand line this matter. But don't you think this will only be a temporary agreement as the Taliban has the same mindset as the other terrorist outfits and in the future they will start harming India again. Uh, you see, in geopolitics, there are no friendships. There are only temporary alliances. And so any alliance that you would have would be a temporary arrangement. The American alliance with Pakistan is a temporary alliance. Today, Pakistan and America are no longer allied. The Pakistanis are allied with the Chinese. India and Russia had this long, long-standing strategic alliance. Today, India and Russia are no longer allied in the same manner. And the Americans have been using the Taliban. They have been using Al Qaeda in Iran, in in Iraq, in Syria. They even used ISIS at some point in time. These are all temporary arrangements to achieve short-term geopolitical objectives. So if India and the Taliban have the same enemy in Pakistan. I don't see any reason why India should not temporarily use this terrorist outfit against Pakistan. The Pakistanis have been using terrorist outfits against India for decades and we have just tolerated that. Isn't it would it would it not be nice for India to pay back Pakistan in the same in the same coin? So I am not against India using the Taliban regime as a temporary tool against Pakistan. Why not? It is a legitimate tool in geopolitics. Everything goes in geopolitics. The Americans have been using various terrorist outfits for decades. And nobody criticizes them for that. The Chinese have used terrorists. The Pakistanis have used terrorists. Why can't India, for a change, use terrorists to dismantle the home base of all terrorists, which is Pakistan. It would obviously be a temporary alliance. We have nothing in common with the Taliban, culturally or any, any other way. So it, 
can only be a temporary alliance. But yes, why not? Use it. My enemy is enemy. I mean, if we have a common enemy, we, we are friends temporarily. So certainly we should do that if such a possibility were to arise. Swastika says, as you said that this could be the beginning of the end for Pakistan, my question is it is that if in the near future Pakistan disintegrates, will it ensure peace in our western borders and neighborhood? What will happen after that? Is there any chance of a threat to India then from Taliban, China, etc.? What should India's next step be? See, uh, as of today, Pakistan is very secure. If in the future, maybe in the next 10 years, Pakistan were to disintegrate, the first thing to do is to secure their nuclear weapons. So either India has to to step in and secure the weapons or the Americans have to do that. We have to ensure that the Chinese don't get to step in and take over those nuclear weapons. So that is step number one. If Pakistan is disintegrating, India has to quickly, rapidly step in and secure the nuclear weapons and all uh, delivery mechanisms. The second thing is that if a country disintegrates, there's a great deal of chaos. You won't have a stable government right away. You will have a great deal of chaos. So India may have to deal with some spillover of that chaos. So if the Pakistani nation disintegrates and becomes a bunch of smaller uh, nations, independent nations, then there will definitely be a period of instability, maybe five years, ten years. So India will have to be certainly prepared for that. India's uh, defense forces will have to be prepared for all kinds of eventualities. But what India should do is India should assist each of these pieces, if this were to happen, in forming stable, democratic and peaceful governments. So that should be the long-term objective. So next step, immediate step, if such a thing were to happen, is to secure the nuclear weapons. And uh, yeah, that, that would be obviously a difficult thing to do. It's not like, you know, child's play. But that's what armed forces are trained for. So, so that is the immediate step that India would have to take in such an eventuality. Ayush says, can Dharmic religions make a comeback in Afghanistan and Pakistan in the next 50 years? No. No. It took a thousand years for Indian culture, which is Dharma, to be wiped out of Afghanistan and Pakistan. It has taken, in Afghanistan, it, it, uh, this process took a thousand years. In Pakistan also, it's only now that we have very few Hindus or Sikhs left there. So a process that took a thousand years cannot be reversed in 50 years. So I don't see any comeback of the, of the Dharmic culture in either Pakistan or in Gandhar, Afghanistan, in the next hundred years. It doesn't mean we should give up hope. This has to be a multi-generation project. If India has to uh, create, recreate a, an alliance of, uh, of like-minded nations again, these are all our lost territories. I don't see anything wrong with India aspiring to reclaim these territories when they are uh, sufficiently encultured back into Indian culture. So that has to be a long-term project. The, the Chinese plan for 100 years. We are much older civilization than the Chinese. We should plan for 200, 300 years. Why not? And every generation has a significant role to play in that. So if we have that sort of outlook, multi-generation outlook, then we can work towards that. But it is certainly not going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years. It has to take longer. It has to be a step-by-step -step 
slow, gradual process. Because our culture does not believe in converting by the sword, which is what happened there, right? So, so it's it's not going to happen in the next fifty or hundred years. Sanskriti says, why is it so hard for many Indians to distinguish between what's real and what's not? I find it really stupid that people try to apply spirituality in worldly affairs. You don't meditate when your car breaks down. You simply call the mechanic and try to fix it. And people literally call you names even when you talk about the national interest. Why is it so hard for Indians to see the reality? See, uh, I do not blame the people of India for having this sort of mindset. It is India's education system that has taught them that India became independent because of non-violence and Satyagraha and Mohandas Gandhi. Indians truly believe it because this is what our teachers teach us. It's what our textbooks teach us. When you grow up from the age of three, being told this year after year, you're going to start believing it. It's called brainwashing. So Indians truly believe that it is ahinsa, and Satyagraha and Mohandas Gandhi that brought us freedom. And therefore, these tools should be used for all situations. Indians are not able to see, unfortunately, because the Indian education system, it it, it prevents them from asking questions. It uh, does not in, uh, endow the people of India with the, uh, with the critical thinking pro- process and all that. And therefore, Indians have become like sheep today. They believe whatever the media tells them whatever people in authority tell them. And that's why Indians are so misled and in the dark about how the world really works. Look at Tibet. Did did non-violence save Tibet from China? Is non-violence able to give Tibet freedom from China? Then how did non-violence give India freedom? It's because India never got independence. It was merely a transfer of power from one set of crooks to an even worse set of crooks. That's what happened. So that is why I answer these questions in the, well, I hope that if I <laughs> keep saying the same thing over and over again, then maybe some people will start to understand. I I know for a fact that Indians are a naturally intelligent people. India are the most brilliant and intelligent people in the whole world. So once it is explained properly, I think most people actually understand what's really happening. So that is the reason why Indians are, as of today, unable to distinguish between what's real and what's fake, because our entire system, whether it is the education system, whether it's our teachers, professors, universities, colleges, whether it's the media, whether it's the politicians, they are all telling us lies. Bapu ne hame azadi de di. What absolute nonsense. So, Indians are waking up today. It will take time. It's a gradual process. It will take a couple of generations. But today's generation, today's youngsters are much wiser and much better informed than their parents. So the process is happening. It will take time. But I think India will soon become a more realistic nation, which will actually understand how things really work. Once we start approaching, once we start adopting the mindset and approach of our great Guru Vishnu Gupta Chanakya, that's when India will start going in the right direction. And the population, the populace of India has to imbibe the teachings of the great Guru Vishnu Gupta Chanakya. So I hope it happens soon. I think it's already happening to a certain extent. It will just uh, 
gather pace as 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 the years go by okay this is a, that's it for today let me take some live questions from you so if you have any live questions if you have any other questions to ask me ask me now i will take a few questions okay anurag says we need to first look for a 10 trillion dollar economy you are right economy does matter but if you look at russia for instance russia's economy is much smaller than that of india and yet russia has such a powerful military it is a de facto superpower it is the world's biggest military arsenal so economy does matter because india has such a big population we need a much larger economy 10 20 trillion dollars economy to ri- to raise the living standards but to become a global geopolitical player you only have to invest a few billion dollars maybe 100 200 billion dollars per year in the military if you do that then you can become a global geopolitical player in a matter of a few years 5 years 10 years at most so yes economy does matter it is one of the components of your gross hard power of your overall comprehensive national power it is definitely something that india needs to aim at so india needs to find ways of restarting rebooting and kickstarting its economy after especially this pandemic which has stopped everything who actually gave us independence if not bapu who said we are independent we are not independent what independence independence have we got we are still obeying the same laws that the british wrote we have a constitution that has not one drop of indian culture in it it is a western constitution we are our our system of governance the parliamentary democracy has been taken copied wholesale from the british westminster system our democracy is a pretend democracy because there is no internal democracy within the political parties the only option we get is to we are we have the right to vote once in every 5 years all our institutions are colonial institutions whether it is the, it is the judiciary the police force what is indian about india today we are still speaking in english our textbooks are in english we we give our job interviews in english we are still a completely colonized country where is the independence my friends so that's my answer we are not independent we are still completely colonized okay any other questions soil kumar says is there any chance that china will disintegrate it is very unlikely for the chinese to disintegrate the chinese communist party has a very strong grip on on the nation it is now infiltrating the global ecosystem so it is very unlikely for the chinese communist party and their regime to disintegrate of course it can happen strange things happen unlikely things happen so one has to understand what are the points of leverage what are, what are the pain points if you look at the patterns that recur throughout chinese history it gives you a clue as to what happens what are the, the what are the what are the conditions that lead to the collapse of a regime so yes th- th- that is called the dynastic cycles i have spoken about this before so it is definitely likely that if the chinese communist party indulges in some misadventure especially a military misadventure in which they are they face a catastrophic defeat then that could conceivably possibly lead 
to conditions that would be conducive towards the disintegration of the communist party regime that is a possibility but it is unlikely it is highly unlikely but not impossible okay some more questions drishya says if the northern alliance gets annihilated by the taliban will the world just watch will the un act on it if the northern alliance gets annihilated the world will sit and watch and the un will remain uninvolved in it that's the long and the short of it nobody will lift a finger to stop the taliban from annihilating the northern alliance which is unlikely actually uh i had said that the northern alliance may fall to the taliban it is possible but that that region the panjshir valley is actually a very good defensive stronghold it is uh, it is naturally good for defensive operations it is all high mountains and a very small valley in between the panjshir river so it's very hard for an invading force especially a, a primitive force like the like the taliban to to conquer a region like that so as long as the northern alliance gets supplies from tajikistan or or elsewhere they may be able to withstand the taliban so they may be able to linger there for a long time perhaps but if they do get annihilated by the taliban the world will do nothing to stop it the un will also do nothing okay let me take one more question uh questions about afghanistan and geopolitics tanmay says what is the reason for bangladesh for the bangladeshi hate towards india religion culture simple that's it can you recommend reading material about the teachings of the great guru vishnugupta chanakya read the arthashastra it's available online it's available in english and possibly other languages too read that it's not an easy book to read it takes time to read you have to read several times perhaps to understand certain aspects but it's worthwhile and i think it's the only authoritative material that would help you understand the teachings of this great man okay one more question harsh says is india supporting the northern alliance secretly it is possible that the indian uh, government will support the northern alliance it is in india's interest for the that the taliban is not allowed to take over the country entirely completely there should always be a pain point for a terrorist outfit like the taliban india should never ever trust the taliban in any way even if india in the future at some point in time works with them it is a terrorist outfit we can never trust terrorists we can certainly use them if we have the right kind of leverage we can never trust them and it is always best if there is resistance to the taliban from within afghanistan itself so it is it is good for india if the northern alliance is able to hold out in the panjshir valley so is india supplying the northern alliance well the government has not disclosed anything it is not impossible that india may be doing that it is possible but that if it is happening it is obviously a closely guarded secret okay 
uh that's it for today it's almost two hours great questions thank you for all the questions thank you for watching appreciate it thank you very much and i will see you in tomorrow's live session until then take care have a good day have a good night bye